Ride holds as a social media and creative marketing agency owner, husband, father, DJ, global citizen, keynote speaker, and is proud to bring you the Ride Holds Show Podcast. Another episode of the Ryan Hill Show podcast. Today, my next guest, she needs no introduction. Her name is Jordana. Uh, I like to call her AKA the Gold List Special. Um, she <laughs> is a practicing criminal defense lawyer in the beautiful Toronto, Ontario. Um, and she's sponsoring this episode. JHG Criminal Law is the name that uh, her company uh, goes by and her law firm. Um, Jordana, as you know, is coming on. Uh, for a weekly um, podcast each month and I'm extremely excited um, to talk to her and and just to kind of you know bar down into some of her intellectuality both personally and professionally Um, still trying to crack the nut don't know if I see any coconut water but without further ado Jordana welcome to the podcast my friend Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, it takes some time to crack, but it, you've been hitting it, on that nut every it, time we speak. It, 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 it cracks open just a little bit, a little bit of a time. It, 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 it takes it takes some time. So, so Jordana yeah. and I, you know, this podcast is all about real talking. You know, we're we're you know we kind of have a list of topics and things like that that we want to kind of stay within. You know, just to make sure that we're giving value to you. But that being said, you know, based on the the previous two podcasts that we did, a lot of the questions that we got were uh, you know surrounding self litigation. We're surrounding you know kind of educating yourself in the legal system and basically just asking the question do you have a hope in hell of going against an actual trained lawyer if you're somebody who hasn't went to law school in a case so uh we're gonna open up with just kind of talking a little bit about that and then uh, the conversation is gonna flow so jordana you're a lawyer uh you you get into the courtroom and you're standing uh, beside somebody who's just a complete civilian, so to speak, who has no law degree, who has no, you know, kind of education. What is your first thoughts, honestly? Well, so I, I don't ever face an opponent as self-litigant because I'm I'm on the defense side. So I'm representing, you know, the civilian who's charged with the criminal offense um, and facing off against the crown. But I've been uh, sitting in courtrooms before where I see the crown and a self-represented litigant. And, you know, lawyers have created a system making it virtually impossible for someone to represent themselves with any degree of success. Um, I think you have to be a very sophisticated litigant in the sense of someone who has either been charged repeatedly or has spent a great deal of time in the family law Mm. system. The family law system, from what I hear from my colleagues, is an absolute mess of people trying to navigate. Mm. Uh, And lawyers have created, you know, rules and process and legal tests that don't necessarily match with common sense. Yes, Um, yes. I often find myself making arguments and I'm like, you know, for the average person, and you know, I have these conversations with friends and family. I tell them exactly what I'm arguing, and they're like, "No, it doesn't make sense." Like, <laughs> right? like I don't understand how you can get, you know, drugs excluded on this technicality, and and that's the reality of our system. Yeah. The harm that happens as a result of that in the criminal context, of course, is that people aren't aware that they have these rights. And, and protections that the law has set up. And they also aren't aware that there's certain rules they have to follow in the courtroom in order to assert themselves. And so as a result, they'll end up you know, being either convicted or getting so frustrated with the process that they plead guilty, you know, which I think is, a, is an absolute travesty. 
but kind of like if you go back and, and you jump ship over into like financial literacy, so to speak, right? I mean, when you look at the education that you're provided, where you know you go to elementary, graduate high school, go to college, they never really talk about financial literacy when you think about it. They don't talk to you about you know capital gains tax. They don't talk to you about debt. Do you know the average human being adult doesn't even know how to read a financial statement? You know properly. They don't even. If I ask the average person, what's your three types of money? They don't even know. Three sources of money are always going to be earned income, passive income, and portfolio income. There's no other kind of income that's legal that you can you can manage to put in. Now, that being said, there's a wealth of resources for people who don't understand finances to go out and to really educate themselves. And I don't think somebody has to go to formal school to become really good with money. I think you can really dive in and, and really teach yourself that. That being said, for you, is there any resources that people can go to? Whether it's you know going to a university library and going to the law section, reading the criminal code of Canada, like is there anything? Because I just think about it, your average person's not getting arrested for drugs, murder, or guns. That's just not happening. But you know maybe they punch somebody at a bar, or they have a bad night, or they you know lose their temper, or they got domestic you know violence. I mean we're humans, we're flawed. Is there anything that you feel that people can go and say, look, just go learn your basic rights. Learn how to interact with police when they're actually interrogating you. Because like you said, you're talking to your own family members and they're just like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But to you as a lawyer, it makes perfect sense. For sure. And then and then there's also a reality, right? Mm. So uh, last week, I successfully represented a client of mine uh, on some assault charges, exactly what you just described. It was a bar fight that exploded 30 people. He was the only one charged. Yeah. Um, he went and he was camping this weekend, you know, up north in Ontario. And he called me and he's like, there's some park rangers here that are demanding our identification. You know, they I, I don't know if they want to search our car. What are What are my rights here? And, you know, he did the right thing calling me and we talked it out and it's like, okay, well, they're probably violating your right. But by the same token, do you really want to tee off with some, you know, park rangers? <laughs> the reality is, you know, there you do have to take race into account. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's the world we live in. He's a brown guy. These were white park rangers. He's outnumbered, his friends are outnumbered, they have guns, he does not. Uh, could this have potentially escalated? Absolutely. And so I'm talking through this with him and I said to him, like, straight out, are, are these park rangers white? He says, yeah. I said, what city are you in? He told me. I said, you know what? Just give them your ID. Be really polite and let's not escalate this by challenging constitutional rights. As horrible as that sounds, it's you know, how do you want to spend the rest of the weekend, right? Because when they call police and say these guys are threatening them and they're acting aggressive and, and this escalates, uh, is that really, you know, the route you want to take? If it is, we can work through it. But there's also a basic reality. And people find that a lot when they're encountering the police, right? As soon as you start getting angry and aggressive or you run, that's it, right? Oh, they're chasing yeah. you down, throwing you down. And it may very well have been that you were within your rights to walk away, right? We never have an obligation to speak to the police unless we're being arrested or we're in the driver's seat of a car, right? That's the reality. You get pulled over at a ride check. As the passenger, you're allowed to get out and walk away. You don't have to stay in the car, but you try that at a ride stop and see what happens, right? Yeah. There's a 
reality behind these things. And so, you know, that's some of the common sense versus legal requirements versus reality that, that as a lawyer I have to sort of balance when people are asking me for advice at the outset. Is, um, it really, is it really true that you should remain silent, though, at all times, especially if you're being... Because they, they do ask the question, right? Like, am I being detained? And if you're not being detained, I mean, that's that's a whole different ball game, right? And if you are being detained, well, that's probably the point where you should kind of shut up, right? Because that means now everything is really on record, right? Absolutely. I mean, our standard advice is shut the hell up. Shut the hell up. Not say a word. When my clients call me and they've been arrested, I tell them not to admit what their favorite color is. Don't tell this officer anything about you at all. He knows your name. You don't lie. Never lie because lying is, is one of the worst things you can get caught doing during the course of a police interview. But yeah. you don't have to say anything. The best police interviews are I have nothing to say, I have nothing to say, I have nothing to say. Um, I once had a client that was interrogated on second degree murder and he was so frustrated with this officer refusing to stop the interrogation that he started singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall. <laughs> oh man, that's too much. And just make it stop because yeah. that's the only thing that he could you know, do at that point to make yeah. the interrogation end. That being the case, I've also had a client who was arrested on first degree murder. I told him, don't say anything, don't say anything. He didn't take my advice. He knew 100% that he was not guilty, that he had done nothing wrong and was actually trying to help. Told the officer where he had been at the time the murder was committed in an apartment building and that they should go and check the security cameras. They did that the next day and withdrew the charges because they knew he wasn't, wasn't possible for him to have been involved in this murder given where he was and what showed on the surveillance video. Absolutely. So, you know, those instances are few and far between, but, you know, they happen. If there's an alibi, if you're arrested for something and you know a thousand percent you're in a different city and I stop for gas and go and, you know, look at my credit card receipts because it's not possible for me to have done this. Mm. Um, in that circumstance, you could be helping yourself out, but unless you know, you know, a thousand percent that everything's going to check out, um, that'll that'll definitely backfire. And I've had it backfire. I've had clients say, oh, I was in a different city, and then police get the surveillance, and they're actually not. They're in the city. Uh, they occurred in the general <laughs> crime at the same time that the crime was occurred. And so, so then you look like a liar trying to create a false alibi, right? Uh, Attorney's using that piece of evidence against you to say not only were you able to have committed this crime but you're trying to throw police off by creating a lie that you weren't in the city so do you think everybody should have do you think everybody should be investing time though into learning a little bit about what their rights are yes yeah, basic rights and where is, i think is that there, you, high school kids should be taught absolutely what their rights are how to interact with the police in a positive way um, it, it, there should be a course, for sure, on what your legal rights are in, in all contexts, right? What does it mean to, you know, sue someone? What's involved? When? Like, I have, you know, so many times clients are calling me and they just want to sue. And they don't, there's no been no loss, right? And so in those contexts, it's, it's really difficult. Um, they also think that when someone calls the police, that person is charging them. That's not the case. The police are called, they investigate, and they lay, lay charges. We don't have individuals charging other people. Um, off, the, off the top of your head, where where could people go 
I mean, assuming a lot of people don't know their rights because, you know, it's generational too, where mom and dad didn't know their rights. They're not teaching that to their kids. The teachers right. don't even know their rights. They're not teaching that to the kids. Is there yeah. any website or any book or anything that people could use as a resource off the top of your head that you know that they can go and browse just to read, just to get Absolutely. a little bit of understanding? Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is online. Yeah, you, that's actually in very simple language. It's it's a piece of legislation that's one of the easiest to decipher. It's very much set out, and it is the highest law in Canada, which means law mm. trumps the charter. Our constitutional rights are upheld. They're supposed to be upheld as a, a you know course of being Canadian, and it applies to every Canadian citizen. So I, I think that is probably the most fundamental piece of legislation that everyone should familiarize themselves with, because that's what says, you know, if you're detained or arrested, you have the right to speak to a lawyer. You have the absolute right to know what you're being detained for. You know, Absolutely. a cop can't talk to you and say, I'm detaining you for an investigation. They have to tell you what the investigation's about. Mm. Why are you telling me? Why are you, officer, interfering with my day? And we, as Canadian citizens, are entitled to know that immediately upon detention. There's no, no. Oh, you, give me a minute. I'm going to investigate and put you in this car for an hour and figure out why I'm keeping you there. It's illegal. What is the single thing that really, up, like, really perturbs you? You're very motivated on, again, educating people on their rights and kind of injustice and stuff like that. I know, I know. Given your background, even when I asked you, I said. How come you? How come you're never a prosecutor? You're like, oh hell no! I could never live with myself, right? You no. look at your face. You look like you're yeah, smelling something no. bad. Yeah, but no. you know, you're just like that's that's just not an option. Is it because of your experience one, or is it just kind of what you've seen with the experience of your clients, or just general society when you're out there? And are you that person walking down the street though? If you're at a bar or something and you see somebody getting bugged, are you like, hey, you guys are? <laughs> you are. Hey? <laughs> Yes, I am. Like, why are you stopping him? Why are you, you know, why are you harassing this kid that's just, you know, panhandling? Yeah. Let him go, you know, ask him if he needs help. Doesn't need help, leave him alone. Or if, conversely, if he's actually doing something illegal, arrest him. But do something. Mm. Don't just sit there and, like, arbitrarily harass someone when you can actually tell it's harassment as opposed to, you know, a friendly conversation, just wanting to sort of, you know, bridge that gap in society between some groups and the police, which which is also, mm. you know, something that needs to happen more. We need more of that community policing and, and stop this sort of divide. Um, but that's something that has to happen from both sides, right? Community policing can't involve like an arbitrary frisk mm. to find out that person's got a gun on them. As soon as but you stop frisking someone, you, you've, you've ended any uh, sort of nice collegial conversation cool. you may potentially have. Course. Education, though, is the key in, in all of this, it seems, because you see people that are very, you know, educated. Maybe they're not even educated legally, but they're just educated in general. Like, just they understand the movement of life, they understand the game. And you can always tell when you're in, in contact with somebody like that because their whole demeanor when they deal with police is very, very different. It's very confident. They're not rude, but they're very firm. And I, I feel like that shows the police officer, I'm not dealing with Joe Blow here. Like, I'm dealing with somebody that is very astute in whatever they do. And, and you see the police's body language and the way they deal with people like that completely, completely change. I, I don't want to say the fact that I, I feel like they kind of not pick on, you know, maybe weaker people. But I think human nature, and if we study human nature, people are always picking on people that are a little weaker. That's just the reality, right? 
bullies aren't going for the strongest person in the school often, right? They, they, they're just not because the stem of bullying is always insecurity. Insecurity is always there. We all have insecurities, right? There's a great book that everybody should read listening. It's called Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. Some books I read and some books I study. This one I've studied. It's, it's fascinating. In your business, human nature, I think, plays into almost everything that you do, in my opinion. What does human nature mean to you and also in your business? So human nature is key. Um, oh, yeah. It really is. The ability to figure someone out really quickly is essential in what I do mm. because a lot of what I do you know, I've got to be quick on my feet, right? The crux of what I do happens in a trial, right? That is the end goal of any case. So when clients come to me and say, you know, what's the plan? Well, the plan is we're going to assess the case. We're going to figure out a defense, see what we have to work with. But ultimately that plays out during the course of a trial. Mm. And I need to be able to assess a witness immediately because how I ask questions will change based on who they are. And so some I've expected a witness, for example, to be very combative. I expect that, you know, if I've got uh, uh, an egregious ex-wife on the stand, if it's a, a domestic dispute, for example, sometimes they come out and they're very angry and combative. Other times they're really not. And so I need to be able to change the way that I approach that person because how I would ask a question of someone who's uh, argumentative with me as opposed to someone who just wants to you know be done with this experience and give me the quickest route mm. possible I mean there's just there's different ways to approach a witness and I need to figure that out from the first question because you can throw someone off really quickly and you have to know when to push those buttons and there's a time to push those buttons yeah. but you have to get the timing right otherwise your entire cross-examination can fail yeah, right. And being able to assess someone really quickly is very important. Uh, I also often deal with very volatile clients, right? I have a very violent practice. And so I need to be able to know how to speak with my clients in a way to not set them off, yeah. in a build trust, in a way to work with them. And by the same token, it's important to me, you know, when we speak about understanding the system, it's important that all my clients really understand the process and understand their defense. Um, I have clients that and they, you know, they, their charges are like six or nine months old and they've had a lawyer and they don't understand what's going on on their case and they don't know what the next steps are. I don't get that. You know, my initial concept with any client, even if they're not hiring me, is to explain the process of a criminal litigation from start to this is the way it unfolds. This is what happens. This is what we'll do. This is when we'll review your disclosure and figure out the defense. Uh, so they have a timeline of what's going to happen. And I think that's really important. I think that there is a huge disconnect between what lawyers are doing in the system and those who are participating in the system. And that's not, not right. Um, I think that if, you know, if I were charged with a criminal offense today and I wasn't, you know, in the role that I'm in, I would want to know what's going to happen now. But what do you say? It's not right. But what do you say or do about it? Like, what do you? What's the end goal of that? It's just. It's a statement. You're. You know. It's not right. But then what? Like, what do? What do you? What do you say to that? You know? Because everybody. There's so many different causes around the world and social causes and crusades and things like that. And people always end up. You know, it's almost like one of those statements where somebody's like, I don't know. It just is what it is. It's so fucking passive aggressive. I can't stand <laughs> passive aggressive. I'm, right. I, I, I buckle under it. Passive aggressive, I'll blow it up. 
I, I would actually rather blow up the situation than deal with passive aggressive because I always I want to know where I stand and I want to know where the other person stands and we don't have to stand on the same side. I could care less about that. But at least I have I have enough respect for you to tell me where you stand. You know what I mean? So when it comes to what you said, it's not right and it's not fair. So what are steps that, again, individuals can take to say, OK, well, it's not fair, but here's how I can kind of fight that a little bit. Well, as an individual charge, you should be asking the lawyer, what's the process here? And if your lawyer isn't able to tell you what the process is, you should probably find another lawyer, yeah. right? That's the bottom line. Like if, if you don't know what your lawyer, if your lawyer doesn't know what they're doing as far as the steps in a piece of litigation is concerned, there's a problem. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have a game plan and you don't know where things, the way things are going to unfold, that's a problem. You need to find a different lawyer. The way that I deal with it with my clients is from first consult, explain that process. This is what's going to happen. Whether you hire me or not, this is the steps of a litigation that you should be aware of. Uh, if cost is an issue and it's something that you and I have talked about is, you know, the ability of people to pay. There are certain steps that someone can represent themselves on that not hinge their defense uh, and I explain to them what they can do on their own and how to do it if cost is a factor and say listen if the crown attorney is going to continue with your case and you're going to trial I really encourage you to hire a lawyer if you do some of these steps on your own it will cut down on the costs of that mm. you know I think that what I do is try to help change that situation or that part of the system one person at a time that comes to see me or calls me for advice, mm. um, but I speak out on it, right? And so if I'm in a forum, I say, we, we have to do a better job. We as a profession have to do a better job of making sure that people understand this process. Uh, I speak out quite regularly on lawyers who, you know, what we call dump truck their clients, which is plead them out without considering their defense. Uh, yeah quicker and it's easier and there's a lot of lazy lawyers out there and you know what seems like a deal isn't really a deal when you're now strapped with a criminal record mm. so i you know i have a client right now he's 22 years old with a six-page criminal record from other lawyers pleading him guilty it's not from and finding him guilty mm. that's crazy at 22 years old what are you gonna do mm. and you've got to years conviction free before you can even apply for a pardon so what are you going to do from 22 to 32 if you can't get a real job how do you get ahead it's really interesting we we're having this discussion about that the other day just because i said basically if you're in that situation you better become an entrepreneur <laughs> because i mean that, you're gonna have to create it you're gonna have to create a job for yourself because you know that i mean you see that right you see you do see a lot of people they do that they have to they got to go create a business to survive um for you where do you get your cross-examining techniques from? Because you, that is an art, you know, and cases are won sometimes, I believe, on that. You know, you you really, whoever, to me, I mean, I, I you know, if you're in a courtroom, you're selling your position. At the end of the day, you're really selling your position. And in order to do that, like you said, people in the courtroom, if we want to refer to them, they're kind of all pawns. And you need to figure out which pawn is where. And it's a game of chess, right? It, it's kind of, you know, not, that to me is exciting. So where did you where did you learn your tactics? Do you use the tactics of just being from the street yourself? Or is there interviewers or, or people out there that you're like, I love the way this person breaks down, you know, psychology? So the number one key to developing good cross-examination skills is practice. Mm. Practice, practice, practice. I did a ton of trial work when I was just starting off. I worked in a, a, a firm at the time that took on 
any type of case and we would take it to trial. And so, you know, small robberies, small drug possession cases, someone who breached their bail, you know, I would show up ready to go to trial. Let's just fight this. Let's litigate it. You didn't, you don't need to hire a lawyer to plead guilty. Um, and so a lot of it came through practice. When I first started out, I had uh, a boss who's absolutely a phenomenal lawyer. And so I would take all of the files that were going to trial. I would read the file. I would figure out the defense. And then I would bring it to him and say, okay, this is what the case is about. This is what I think I should do. Tell me, you know, lawyer with 30 years experience versus my six months in. Uh, and so that's what I would do. I would go to other lawyers that were far more experienced than me and, and ask, you know, their opinion, how to, how to approach these things. And then I would spend time in court watching. Mm. I spent a lot of time. So if I was just going to court for, you know, a, a quick appearance first thing in the morning, I would look at the list and see if there was any lawyers in trial. And then I would sit in and watch, even if it was just for a half hour or an hour. Mm. And what I liked and what I didn't like, what I thought was effective, what wasn't. Um, and I just would add the skills that I like or remove things. I was like, oh, I think I do that. And I don't like the way it looks, you know, because one thing to be up there firing questions at a witness. It's another to sit back and watch that interplay. And so I spent a lot of time watching. Uh, I found lawyers that I you know, respected and, and wanted to spend time watching them. And so I did. Um, and today, when I have a difficult client, a difficult witness that I'm not sure how to approach, I do the same thing that I did, you know, 12 years ago when I was starting out. I go and I sit with a more experienced lawyer and say, hey, this is the witness. This is what I need to get out of this witness. Um, this is my approach. What do you think? Mm. And sometimes less is more, right? The, the, a lot of lawyers don't think about why they're asking the questions they're asking and how that advances their case. Mm. It, it, Some, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because... You know, I think about, um, I've never had any issues with the law, but I, I had this one, I was driving this one road and I didn't understand there was this photo radar. It was just, and, and I think for two weeks, so I got 16 photo radar tickets all on the same day because I kept driving and I didn't know there was a photo radar. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go fight these tickets and I want to see what this court thing's about. And it was interesting. So I was sitting there pure waste of time if i took the whole cost benefit analysis i lost right. a lot of money that day because i sat in there for like 10 hours like an idiot trying to fight i don't know 800 dollars with the tickets but I, I got to see quite a few lawyers and there was one guy I, I swear to god he was like a real life johnny cochran this guy came in i'm like he just had it man like he the judge liked him i seen the other lawyer who was like opposing him almost liked him he, and he, he kind of was writing a couple things down. He had his assistant there. He'd go get his file, kind of said, okay, you know, I'll be right back. I talked to my client. This guy knew how to maneuver. I mean, it was appealing. So then I got up for the traffic court, and the, and the judge right away says, 16 tickets? You're guilty. Like, he just did not want to hear it because he's like, this is ridiculous. Like, you didn't learn your lesson. I said, well, hold down. I said, wait a second. I said, slow down. You're jumping to conclusions right now. I said, I know it's now 430. I've been sitting in this courtroom since 8 a.m. And I know I'm just as tired as you are, judge. So then all of a sudden, his whole demeanor was like, and I'm like, I get it. You don't want to. We're done. Look at the courtroom. It's almost empty. But I said, right. this is what. So it was interesting because you're right. Even the judge, you had to really feel them out because you mm -hmm. had to assess, you know, what mood are they in? Because they're still human hey. beings. Right. Uh, there, there's the whole professional conduct. And then there's the, well, what mood is this person in and what time of day is it? Because they answer right. with everybody. But you are very right. So you basically went in and just started being a sponge. 
to in the courtrooms to mentors things like this absolutely absolutely and, and i and i still am you know i i don't think that i am finished learning i'm not finished refining my techniques i still try to observe you know more senior lawyers who see what their argumentation styles are um and and it's a style right yeah. there's a way to argue and so knowing your audience is so important to that and people forget that right the way that i make an argument to a judge is way different than the way i make an argument to a jury right when i address a jury in closing you know i have to be entertaining i have to be lighthearted i i, I want them to like me because people don't listen to people they don't like oh right i have to be likable and approachable and talk to them without talking at them and and that just takes time and it takes practice and you have to enjoy it you know i know so many lawyers that don't actually enjoy it you know they're so scared to do trials and they're scared to present to juries if that's the case then don't do them you're doing a disservice to the client if you are just taking something for the money and are actually either bad at it or scared of it and if you're scared of it you're probably bad at it so I, you know i think that people really have to embrace it and then there's lawyers that you watch and you know they absolutely love it and they live for it and they've been preparing their closing in their minds for the last you know two months <laughs> And you can see it, you can tell. And it's, you know, it's lawyers on both sides. I've been very impressed by Crown attorneys who have done an excellent job and been very fair in their closings. Uh, and I'll tell them that. And I've learned, you know, sometimes from the Crown attorneys that I've done cases with, I've been like, you know what? That was, like that, that was a really good technique. And so we have to keep our mind open to always learning and improving in doing the things that we enjoy doing, right? And when you enjoy it, you want to naturally be better at it. Is there any books that you've read uh, in regards to interviewing or interrogation or like everything you just said was hilarious because you basically said you need people to like you, number one. So people listening to the podcast, you need people to like you. Uh, you also need to, to understand who your audience is. You sound like a, a pure business person, not just sales. It's like a, a great keynote speaker, right? Nobody becomes the president uh, by being a, a terrible speaker, right? I mean, I look at Donald Trump, right? And there's, I mean, hate him or love him. You just kind of like, wow, this. Yep. He, he defeated all of the, he, he, I think for the first time, you do have a president that actually says what he feels. And it's, oh, yeah. it's, he it's, it's, it, he tweets it, it's, he texts it's, it. it's polarization times like an infinity, right? Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I like him or hate him, but I'm like, uh, there's always something to be learned in situations. And that guy will be studied, he will, he'll be studied forever for life because he came in and completely changed that. But for you, what kind of cross examiner would you say you are? That's why. And everybody, I texted her one time. I said, take a picture of the courtroom or something like that. You're like, I can't do that. I'll get kicked out of court. Because it's interesting. You talk about that courtroom for you is your playing field, right? It's like all the work that you do away from the field leads up to those couple moments of winning or losing. And it is a game of inches, right? And for you, you're, you know, you have to be competitive. You have to have competitive nature, I think, to be a great lawyer because you got to want to go into the playing field wanting to win. But then you can't just say you want to win. You actually have to do the work to win. So for you, what kind of competitor are you in that on that field? And if everybody gets to see a YouTube clip of you presenting your argument, what do people say Jordana Goldless is like? So I make sure that I know my defense 
before I start preparing any of my cross-examinations. And the key for me is using the cross-examination of one witness to assist in the cross-examination of another and another and another. You know, you talk about chess and that's exactly it. Like, sure, you can hit a home run with some witnesses and just knock the case out of the ballpark, but that's few and far between. What you're really trying to do is move your defense from one base to the next in order to get those points. And you do it slowly. So if you don't have a game plan, if you haven't strategized leading up to the trial, you've already lost. Mm. You need to keep your defense through every single witness so that they know. And sometimes you're asking the exact same questions of a series of witnesses. <laughs> and you yeah. know what the answer is, right? You, you already know, the jury knows what the answer is, but this piece of information is so crucial to your defense you want to make sure that everybody hears it constantly with every possible witness that you're weaving it through, you know? Oh, so, you know, John Smith was wearing a red hoodie that right? It wasn't a black hoodie, right? Okay, next witness. And that might be the only question you have. John Smith, red hoodie, right? You didn't see him in a black hoodie. You didn't see him change. He doesn't even own a black hoodie, does he? No, no, no. Okay. And so that by the time you get to, you know, your closing address to the jury, it's like, jurors, you know that my client couldn't have been the one with the gun because he wasn't wearing the black hoodie that the gunman was wearing, right? Yes. And but to drill that in, in advance, to the point where by the time the Crown Attorney's playing the surveillance video of the shooting and there is Mr. Shooter in the black hoodie, the jury already looks and says, oh, that's not a red hoodie. So it wasn't John Smith who had the gun, mm. right? You have to be able to drill that in with each witness. It's also important to not bore the jury, right? By asking questions that are totally irrelevant. Like if mm. you can't see shoes, don't ask what color shoes John Smith was wearing. <laughs> I mean, like it doesn't and so a lot of people feel like they need to fill the air and ask questions of every single witness. It is unbelievable how often in a jury trial I'll say no questions. No questions. I don't need to question because there's nothing that witness can give me that I will want to tell the jury about in my address. And so and that's a psychological play, too, because, man, you, you know, you got the jurors thinking, what? No questions. Right. Hmm. So, so maybe this person's not important, and I'm just going to discount everything they had to say. Well, when maybe it was something important for the crown, but if I can't use it, I don't care about it. Law lawyers ask a lot of open-ended and rhetorical questions because you kind of get this question asked that you that they didn't really want you to ever answer. And the way the questions asked, you don't. You're like, well, it, and you're like, yeah, that's all. Thank you. Have a good day. And you're just yeah. like, oh, okay. And then, but it's interesting when you talk about your defense. Now, we know that people who write stories often get overpowered by people that are better narrators of the stories, meaning the story could be yours, but whoever narrates it the best. Do you ever look at your, your defense cases or your, your arguments as stories? They are stories. They are stories. They're absolutely stories. There's, defenses are generally, to juries, they're stories, and you have to explain what happened in a way that makes sense to them, that accords with their common sense, because jurors aren't armed with law degrees, right? It's a mm. whole different process. Mm. Mm. You don't have to tell a story to a judge. The judge will make up whatever story fits with the evidence, right? I don't mean make up the sense 
like, I don't mean that in a drug. Mm-hmm. The, the judge will decide the facts in accordance with the evidence he's heard. He doesn't need a whole story behind it. And often if I'm going judge alone, it means I'm doing something like challenging someone's constitutional rights. So I don't have to make up a story because, for example, the gun was in his waistband. There's no story to tell. The question is, can I successfully argue that the police should never have been in his waistband? Uh, and that's specific, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, again, it, it turns on the facts, but people are uh, free from unreasonable search and seizure, which means the police can't just walk up to someone wearing baggy pants on the street and figure out whether they've got a gun in their pants. Mm. Right. By the same token, if someone matches a, a robbery description uh, to a T and the person's being investigated as a potential suspect, detention allows for police to conduct a pat down search. And so if this person actually matched the description uh, and it can't just be a generic description of, you know, a five foot eight white guy wearing a black hoodie, for example, mm. so I don't know how many of yeah. those are. <laughs> right. But if it's something more specific, like white guy black hoodie you know a nike check on the front yeah you know blue jeans and a big wallet chain for example oh yeah and they're like wow there's not too many of people who are dressed in exactly this fashion in this exact area where this robbery just occurred uh they probably have the right to conduct an investigative detention (laughs) and so making those arguments to a judge i don't have to tell a story i have to argue the law and i have to give examples of the law and i have to explain you know why this particular stop was unlawful so again it's it's specific we as lawyers have to be able to change the way that we're presenting our story and and narration is a part of it right am i arguing the law or am i really inventing the story in order to create the defense those close to my circle like to say that i i'm a poker in my whole 24-hour day, I poke. And it's kind of funny when you say that about the, the chain hanging off the pads because undercover cops, there's really good undercover cops, there's really terrible undercover cops, right? right. And a tell on an undercover cop is usually always teeth. And it's just something about their walk. And so there's there's a few times where I see an undercover cop, but I just wanted to have fun with them. So I, I called them out on the undercover cop. One time I was just standing in Starbucks. This guy's like standing in front of me. And he, like, he was really, I would say, I'd give him a 98% score. But he had the stupid, he had the little black watch on. So I said, excuse me, sir. I said, you might as well wear a shirt that says undercover. It's like kind of saying police when you're not police. And he turned around and he's like, uh, excuse me? I said, well, you might as well wear a shirt that says you're undercover. So he kind of looked at me for a sec. He looked really like, he got really like almost defensive for a second. And I said, I'm just playing with you, man. He's like, how did you kind of tell that? I said, you got to ease up in your posture. That's number one. Number two, you got to get rid of that stupid black watch. And number <laughs> number three, put some, like put some coffee on those white teeth. Your teeth are too damn white and straight, man. I'm like you're just and your eyes are too. Your eyes are your your eyes are interrogative. Like you can't look yeah. at somebody without actually just looking at them. And so he just kind of looked back and he's like, "Geez, you know, I appreciate that." He's like, "God, you know." But it's interesting, right? So you you're somebody that I, I i i do find genuinely interesting because you sit back a lot and really observe and your job is to really ascertain who i'm talking to and who your audience is really really quick and you you do a lot of listening it seems like you listen a lot more than you talk maybe in some circumstances how has has listening what 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 kind of role does listening play into your whole cross-examination because i i find it funny that Everything you said about cross-examination is almost like walking in and doing a sales pitch. People got to like you. You got to know who their audience is. 
figure out what their problems are, have already five or six potential solutions for the problem, and then make it seem simplified enough that they don't seem overwhelmed by it. Otherwise, it just goes all out of the the, the thing there. So for you, how important is listening? Um, and everybody listening to this, pun intended, um, Jordana, what, what does listening mean for you? So listening is, is way more than hearing someone's words, right? And I think a lot of people in a lot of different venues, not just in the courtroom, don't take stock of how important tone is, how important intonation is, how important pauses are. And so I'll ask a question and I wait to see where a witness will pause because it sometimes will tell me where they're lying, right? It's in that pause. It's in that they take a moment and you can just see them you know you have to listen because you can change a story slightly by embellishing it and that tells me that the story isn't true right and so i always tell clients you know the importance of certain stages in the proceedings if i have a a lying complainant an alleged victim and, and the client comes and says, listen, I, I didn't commit this crime. She's lying about me. She's saying all of these things that aren't true. I mean, I don't know whether or not that's true or not. I wasn't there. So, But if that's what a client's telling me, then that's the way that I proceed. And the, the best way to catch them in a lie is to make them repeat the story, right? Because it's <laughs> a little bit off. And you make them repeat the story in detail, right? I want to know, what were you wearing? What what was he wearing? What did, it, what did you talk about? What was the conversation? What did you order to drink? Like, I want the details, right? How, how was that drink? What type of wine was it, right? Like, I want to pound these things in. If you ask me that, you know, a thousand times about a, an event that actually happened, my answers will always be the same because I'm picturing it and I'm telling you what actually occurred. But if it didn't occur and this witness is actually making that event up, then asking them to repeat those details will change slightly, you know? So the difference between saying white wine and red wine can be huge if I'm looking for all of the inconsistencies. And so listening is so important to what they're saying and how they're saying it. And, and I, again, you know, if someone comes across as angry, I have to approach them very differently than if they're sad, right? If I've got a witness who's sad, I, I don't want to hammer them with questions because then the jury feels bad for this witness. <laughs> Right? And I don't, I don't I like want it. I need to bring them up. I need to make them comfortable. And yeah. when people get comfortable, they tend to give you the information that you want a lot easier than if you come at them in a in an aggressive, combatant manner right <laughs> off right out the gate. Right? When you attack someone, they get their guard up. But when you're, yeah. you're nice, you know, you gotta sweet talk them a little bit, and you get what you want. It's that it's that amygdala, the brain. I mean, as soon as as soon as people start uh, getting any kind of itchiness, they the those defensive. Uh, tendencies keep coming you're you're a very bad person because you take somebody sad you bring them up only to crush them and make them sad again because after they realize what happened they feel violated when i when i walk into a courtroom the only person that needs to be happy with me at the end of the day is my client yeah yeah That's no, it. i'm not there to make friends uh i had someone ask me a few weeks ago whether or not i was okay practicing in a different jurisdiction because the the local lawyers weren't very friendly and said you know i came in this profession to make money not friends and i walk into the courtroom to do justice to my client that's it i'm I'm not there for anything else you can do that in a in a manner that's 
ethical and professional and still you know maintain uh, that level of civility you don't have to do it in an underhanded fashion but at the end of the day if a witness or a crown attorney or a police officer walks out of the courtroom and they don't like me i'm okay with that as long as i did right by my client that's that's my duty I know, I know in previous conversations, you always mention you, you have a really good uh, strength for um, compartmentalizing your feelings. But a lot of, you know, people listening too, because I mean, again, the audience we're talking to is a lot of business owners and, you know, aspiring and all these things. People are very motivated. But one question that always gets tossed out a lot is really how do you, you know, turn on the button and then turn it off? And then what is that thin line that, you know, goes on one side and then goes on the other side? And do you straddle the line? Do you sometimes cross back and forth? Just how do you navigate sometimes your own inner emotions to make sure that, you know, you got the best possible game face on, um, you know, when it comes to game day, but then at the same time are not a complete beast where you're just alienating yourself. How do you do that? You, in your profession, you know, you look different, you know, you, you got a different vibe. You know, you're, I, I've seen a lot of criminal defense lawyers. They're, you know, some of them I'm like, oh, God. You know, really? Like, that ain't no Johnny Cochran. Maybe that's just TV. I don't know. But, you know, and they might be ferocious. Maybe that's their whole... I mean, I've also seen those quiet, silent beasts, and that's kind of their whole spiel. And they, they come in wanting to be kind of under underestimated. And then they come out and give you a right hook at the end that you didn't see coming, which is a great tactic, too. Absolutely. For you, for you how do you navigate yourself with such a complex profession? It's... Because you're dealing with, I think it's more complex for you just because, too, who you're dealing with and then the kinds of uh, trials and law that you're actually doing, which is, oh, it's the worst of, that's the worst things you can do. I mean, you're dealing with the worst things you can do in your life. So how do you, how do you deal with all that? So, cracking the nut, cracking the nut, cracking the nut. I, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be disappointed, but I don't have nope. much separation, right? I spend so much of my time working and and being involved and I love it you know for me it doesn't necessarily feel like work it's not like oh god it's Monday and I gotta work again right I don't have that um my office line is boarded to my cell on the weekend so that I can keep up with people that's just sort of um how I embrace it and you know as far as how to approach again it goes back to psychology right like how I'm going to speak to a client charged with murder is going to be very different than the phone call I have with the crown attorney who's prosecuting and it's a different you know sort of route that I would take in the actual courtroom and how I speak to the judge and the jury's not there uh, is certainly more formal than if the jury is there so they feel part of the process like there's there's ways there's ways to do it and I think it's just about practice right you, you figure works and what doesn't and and part of it is just style you know that's how I've always been I think that growing up I was uh, always in different social circles and so I was always a bit of a chameleon in the sense of I had to adjust the way that I spoke and what I did and how I held myself within each group in order to make it work uh, you know we've, we've talked in the past I was in a group home when I was really young and so for me I had to adjust myself accordingly you know in the group home in a different school I went from living you know in a very suburban sort of middle-class family to going to school in a very you know urban uh, high school that that was taking students from three different housing projects in downtown and, and putting them together. I had to navigate that without any lessons and not growing up 
uh, in that environment at all. And so luckily, you know, I was I made friends very quickly and figured out sort of how to exist in that world. Um, and, you know, I did that for a year and a half and then I got thrown back into suburban high school that I had mm-hmm. with people that I didn't even know anymore. Right. And, that, you know, I had people that were complaining about, you know, their parents not giving them the car for the weekend. Meanwhile, like I had just spent a year and a half with kids who some of them had to deal with their mom not being able to pay the electricity bill in the middle of winter. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so I couldn't I wasn't fitting in there either. And so I sort of have always, I, I grew up having to adjust really quickly uh, to different types of people. And I think as a result, now I'm, I'm really quick to assess what someone's like and adjust accordingly in order to get ahead. Are you alone? Are you more of a loner or are you somebody that has to constantly be around people? Um, I love being alone. I accomplish a lot in my alone yeah. time, I yeah. do a lot of writing. Um, when I'm in serious trial prep mode, it's at home alone uh, so that I don't mm. background, but I'm also social. So I have a great social life. I have a great social network, but there's a time and place for that. I'm, I'm very being alone. Uh, I've taken cases that are out of the city. I, I once lived in a different city four hours away from Toronto. Uh, so I left my entire world for two months and I was basically alone um, up there. I, you know, I was during the day I was working with colleagues and it was fine. Um, and I'm okay with that. I don't, I don't really feel lonely. I, I'm busy. <laughs> I stay focused. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very much comfortable being alone. So, so I'm comfortable doing things by myself. Have you heard of Robin? Have you heard of Robin Sharma? Have you heard of I've, him? Yeah. yeah I he, a monk that drove a Ferrari or yeah, something like that. He does the whole 5 a.m. method where he says, you know, you wake up at 5 o'clock and 5 to 5.20 is just a time for reflection. 5.20 to 5.40 is, you know, do a little sweaty exercise and 5.40 to 6 o'clock could be whatever you want. But he kind of says, you know, m- most people who are legendary, you know, they really, really do great job of getting rid of all those outside forces and, and distractions and Everybody has their own, he called it like their little, and I'm paraphrasing, but called it their own Hollywood kind of hotel where he says some people take a condo that nobody lives in. They go they go bury themselves in their condo and go into really deep mind space because he said to be great at anything you're doing, you have to take your mind to a completely different place than 99% of people that if you look down from your window walking on the street are not there, right? right. It's nice when you're in a condo because you look down, you're like, man, this is a stable of sheep. You realize everybody's walking. Hell, if you sit at your window at 7.02 every morning, you'll probably see the same lady wearing the same coat walking down the same street. I, I used to live in a condo, and I'm a weirdo. So I'd look, I just I just play it for myself and see if this was right. And I right. just look down. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, oh, yeah. my God, this guy's going to come out with a disgruntled look out of his face out of the Starbucks. And he's always yeah. going to look at his coffee. I'm yeah. like, oh, my God, this guy's doing it every day. I'm like, oh, this is crazy. For you, though... You're, you you want to be amazing at what you do and kind of stemming into the whole, you know, you have a great social circle, but I have no problem just really putting your head down. To have a lifestyle like that, does your, does your entire life funnel into your work to some degree? The relationships you take on, the, the friendships, because a lot of people too in their social settings say, look, I can't have friendships that need me to talk to them 16 times a day. I just don't have time for that. Do you, is that something you're con- you conscientiously think about or just something that is manifested from you living your life? 
Yeah, I think I've just cultivated over time. It's so funny you say that. I was at a, a dinner party on Saturday night. I think it was 12 of, of my closest friends uh, celebrating, you know, another person's birthday that was at, at the table. We were all hanging out. And I don't know how it came up, but I have friends that I've sort of brought in for years and years and years. And so I had one of my best friends sitting beside me who's known me since I was 18 years old. And she's seen me come up through everything. And, and then sitting across from me was a very good friend of mine who's also a colleague. We worked together on cases. And then sitting beside her was the girlfriend of one of my good friends who I've known for like 10 years. And and so it was like different you know, aspects of my life. And someone talked about how calling me is like walking on eggshells sometimes because they don't know if I'm gonna pick up the phone and be like, hey, what's happening? Or I'm gonna be like, I'm working. <laughs> and, and if they hear the tone in my voice, they know that the call needs to end. Oh, sorry, I pocket dialed you and, and hang up the phone because I'm in my zone and I just can't be interrupted. But if I see friends calling, it tells me that they might need something. And so I, I interrupt what I'm doing in order to take that call. Um, and so over the years, people have just had to adjust to that's me. You don't really know what they're going to get at the moment. And I don't know if that's sort of my Gemini personality coming out where it's, I'm either like so happy to hear you or I'm like, what the fuck do you want now? I, and I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure that out though. Cause I, no, you continue. Sorry, I'll, I'll finish. I, I can speak to this though, but I'll, you finish, you finish. <laughs> so I, I think that my friends just over the years, you know, in order to stay my friend and be in my life, you have to accept that that's just me without me necessarily being conscious of it, right? I'm not doing it on purpose to um, put someone out or, or make someone feel a certain way. I am. I'm just so focused and maybe just so selfish sometimes that like when I'm in the zone, I have to be right. I'm, I'm giving that my 100%. And that's why, you know, you talk about Robin Sharma up at 5am. I don't get up at 5am, but I get up at 6am and I'm alone and working for sure. Uh, usually for the first few hours of the day, uh, depending on where I have to go to court and where my drive has to, to take me even on the weekends. And I love that time because no one's no one's texting. I'm literally just like, you know, focusing on whatever it, it takes precedent at that at that moment, and I love it. You have you like when people play by your rules, though, right? You you like that because I see my interactions with you. I, I do find it a little funny to be honest, and I'll tell you why. Because all of a sudden you're you're kind of like it's 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 kind of like two people. It it really is because. You know, you're, you're texting and all of a sudden, you know, you're like really, okay, cool, awesome, you know, and the word's misspelled and there's no emoji at the end. You just kind of fling it out. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, all right, it's like that. Okay, okay, hey, hey, hey. And then there's another text. You're like, hi, how are you doing? Oh, my God, are you ready? The podcast is happening. And I'm just like, is that your, that's true. It says your name on it, right? Like, so I'm like, what the hell is going on there? And it's it's funny because I think this is a good it's it's good conversation because it's just understanding. I, I I think it's understanding human nature, but it's also understanding what people want and how they really you know kind of set up their life for for success, right? I think I think to study people is truly truly fascinating, and I think the people who have really came in our world and created change their their ways and habits first of all they were just normal people i don't find anything crazy in that regard but the way they maneuvered their own lives 
that is where a lot of people learn. That's why you're seeing all these books written and all this, you know, you, you hear so much information out there and it's 10 different versions of the same thing. For you, like, speak on that. What does that mean for you? Because you're, I think one side you got, you're very like, you know, boom, you're in it, you know, super, I think you're really giving, like to care, you, you know, you always got your, your friends backs and stuff. And then on the other side, I don't know what the other side is yet. That's the, that's the nut, right? That's the nut we're cracking, so... I don't even think it's necessarily as complicated as, as it seems. When I send those one word texts like awesome, it's because I'm working on 12 text message conversations, 10 emails that have come in during that one time. And I've been in back to back phone calls. Like literally I can spend hours on the phone where, you know, I'm in one call. Oh shoot, I got to take this call. And, and I cut to the next one and cut to the next one. And in the backdrop of all of that, I still have to prepare for my day tomorrow. And I can't get to it because I can't put my phone down. Jordana, are you ready for your first challenge here? Are you ready for your first hair flick? Uh-oh. It might make your might make your Uh-oh. hair on the neck go Uh-oh. up. No, I I I dis I I agree with that. I, well, no, no. First of all, I, I don't make it. To, I, I don't want to make it sound complicated. I don't think it's complicated at all. But I think there's there's no right or wrong here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm gonna lead with that. Nice neutral headspace. Okay. But okay. I I feel like if I look at my. <laughs> No, no, this is, and this is where, again, you can, you can ask me questions too. This is not me just interviewing you, but how I am, and I'm not, and I, I'm learning. I'm always learning myself. You know, I really am. But if I get text messages, cause I mean, my world is inundated. Like I'm busy, you know, messages, messages, messages. But then I look at a message and I'm like, I have to, I have to, like, I have to, if, well, let me, let me, let me lead with this. If I care and I'm, I'll be honest about that. I'm pretty brutal. I have a lot of friends that are like, haven't heard from Ryan in two years. I just, I'm really super dialed in. I'm a dad, I'm a husband and I do business. I, I'm really, I'm really a two gear guy. I do I, my family and business. I don't really, I don't really, I don't have hobbies. Like I know how to play the saxophone. You know, my hobby is standing, my hobby is standing out, out and really figuring out what is going on in the world. You know, I'm very creative, but that being said, when I have conversations with people, I super dial into them. I really do. And if I care about them, I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I'm going to really invest in that. And sometimes I think it, it, it pays off. Not that I expect a reward. But then there's other times I'm like, hmm. I'm like, maybe that could be a little bit of a waste of time. You know, am I allocating my time properly? So I've thought about it from both perspectives. That's why I'm asking you. I do that all the time. I um, And I, I'm quick to cut people out. Uh, sometimes to the dismay of, of other people around me, right? If I see a quality in someone or, or a characteristic in someone that bothers me, I'm, I'm, I can walk away. And it can be, you know, a, a five or ten year friendship. And I've, I've done that recently where I, I went over to someone's house and uh, for three hours this person was shit talking someone who was supposed to be his best friend and her girlfriend. And I'm listening to this and I kept intervening. I'm like, you know, I'm friends with that person too. I don't, I'm not okay with this. I'm not comfortable with that. And kept going back to conversation, kept going back to conversation. And I left that night and I was like, if that's how he's talking about this other person, how does he talk about me when I'm not there? I'm not okay with this. And that was it. That, that for me is the end of the friendship. And if I see him out, you know, socially, hey, how are you? Uh, there doesn't have to be a fight for it. There doesn't have to be a conversation about it. It's just, I've seen something that I don't, I don't like. And I don't want to waste my time, energy, and effort on someone mm. who has the 
potential to do that. I'm not okay with it. And so, you know, I don't waste time with people when they don't have anything constructive to, to add to the conversation. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that time is one of our most valuable resources and we have to allocate it in a manner that makes sense and in a manner efficient and effective for our own goals, whatever they might be. And maybe the goal of the night is just to have an amazing time. I want to make sure that the people <laughs> out tonight are good people. I don't yeah. want to, and I don't want to have to like, you know, if I got someone that's fall down drunk, I don't want to have to look after you. So if that's how you get, like, I don't want to be out drinking with you. And like, if I want to have an intelligent, intellectual conversation, I want to make sure that those seated at my table are going to be able to add to that. And so, you know, I, I agree. I think I think we have to use our time constructively, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, my short text message responses aren't necessarily because I don't want to add to that conversation. It's because I do want to respond right away, but I got to respond to so much. And sometimes I don't even realize how sort of quick I am. Uh, although those around me have been reminding me. <laughs> but there's also, but, the, but like you said, there's room for improvement, right? Because you're, you're well, and this is what I'm saying, because, you know, you look at, I mean, it's like curation of your personal life. I mean, I, I, I believe you are what you eat and I believe you are who you surround yourself with, period. I think yes. those two things seep into you and I think you could, you know, you know this and I'm sure, you, you know, you've lived a life too. You have so many friends, I'm sure, or past friends. They wasted so much time on Sally doesn't do that. Bob doesn't do this. Mark doesn't do this. And, and, and it's yes. just like, man, just go live your life. Don't worry yes. about what they're, stay in your lane and do you, boo. You know, like do you, right? And you know, and it's 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 human nature. I get it, but I'm very much somebody that's like I have a very specific set of goals I want to accomplish in my lifetime, and you know I need to make sure that my army of troops is supporting and I can support them. But I'm super specific on who gets more than. Hey, how are you? I just don't, and I I'm terrible at small talk. Like I could small talk all day long. I just don't want to. So right. my like I'm at my home in BC here because I live in in Edmonton and here in BC. I live in a retirement community. You know I'm the youngest guy in the block for sure. Everybody else is a 75 year old orthodontist. I'm a 35 year old black man coming out, you know, <laughs> with my curls and chilling, cut my grass. And everybody wants to stop it, stop and just kind of talk about small talk. And yeah, it's interesting. What, what are you doing it, here? I love living here because it shows you two different perspectives of life. It, sh it shows you the person who was extremely confident, hustled and succeeded. I've had like some of the most brilliant conversations with some of the, my retired neighbors. And then I've had right. conversations with retired neighbors that it's the old adage where it's, oh, I, 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 he was the same way he was when he was 40. He was the right. same way he was when he was 25, you know, and the world was against him and the universe came out with this bad thing, right? And when I do meet people that I'm like, oh, this person thinks differently, I, I think there's something about me that wants to challenge them a bit. Because I feel like most people like that don't get challenged. Um, they don't get challenged to a degree that they should. You know, people right. try to challenge you, but it's like a bad challenge. But then there's like a real intellectual challenge. I like intellectual challenge. I like somebody calling me on my shit. I married my wife because honestly, I, she just called me on my shit. My wife is gangster. <laughs> She's a gangster. And I mean, I just, I, t I said it in my vows, you know, and for, for, for lack of better words, don't take it the wrong way, but my wife can be a supreme bitch, like in right. a, a crazy way. I love that. I, like that. I love that. I, I dig that. I 
needs to be we grow through challenge if i'm not challenged if i if i'm not getting called on my shit if i'm not being forced to like consider a direction or consider my behavior then i'm staying the same and if i'm staying the same it means i'm not improving and so for me you know i like that and i i do i have a great group of friends that some of whom will call me on my shit and they'll they'll call me and they ask me some of the same questions that you do what do you do for yourself are you taking <laughs> care of yourself and I have to be honest with them and say no. Well, I'm going to call you weekly and make sure you're doing something to care for yourself because you have to put yourself, you know, first. And so we need those people in our lives that are going to call us on our shit. Otherwise, well, there's there's no progress. We're staying stagnant. And I uh, I can't believe that that there can be a life built on stagnation. Does it make sense? I think I think it, it does. I think I think. Well, my last question is it's simple but complex. I think how do you because you're somebody who's operating at, you know, the highest in their game, you know, and, and try, trying to strive for more. How do you, you know, when the casket drops, how much is family and then your professional accolades? Like, how do you balance the personal accolades and the, and the professional accolades? And how much does, you know, which one, which one applies more to legacy, I guess? For me, I'm a legacy person. I really want, I don't want, I, I want legacy. Some people are rich. Like, I like wealth. Wealth and rich are two completely different things. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I'm not going to leave a, a legacy with family. I, we've talked about this before. I have no desire to have children. I'm yeah. turned 40 years old. and uh, My close, Pete, close friends and stuff. Your friends are still family and all that stuff, too. And uh, No, I want to be bigger than, than that, for sure. I want to be bigger than that. I want... Um, you know, my whole concept about who judges the judge and the way that society judges people and looks at people, um, the failure of society to give some people a second chance or an opportunity for change, I think contributes to not just, you know, the, the disproportionate amount of people who are disadvantaged, but it creates a more violent and volatile society for everybody, including mm. those who are advantaged. And so that's a message that I've been trying to, to share through social media, through posts, um, through writing articles that I want to continue pumping out. Um, I have a, a colleague of mine, we're working on putting together a workshop for law students so that we can, in the profession, understand, you know, the, well, another chance and to help people to achieve an outcome that allows them to succeed, right? And I. And, want to help bring people up that's really the legacy that that i want to leave is in that message and making that positive social change as an example and as you know through the ability to educate other people so no that's that's the legacy i'm working towards creating and so that's i think why my profession is so important because i have people who message me I had a young woman message me this weekend i represented her years ago cleared her of all of her charges really mm drugs, guns, like robberies. She was involved with a really bad dude who was bringing her down. And she came from a very difficult upbringing. Uh, and I remember her story very clearly. It, it was touching. Um, and and now she's living the life. She is so happy. Law-abiding, pro-social background. And she's now helping to bring others up. And, and she out to me on, on Instagram just to say thank you. You know, what you did for me is amazing and you're an inspiration. And if I can just do that, helping others to help others, that's the legacy that I, I want to leave behind. And that, for me, gives meaning to the life that I lived as a teenager, right? I, I don't want 
and through all of that pain and torment for nothing, you know, mm. for my personal success, for riches. No, I, it can't. It's not enough. Not mm. enough. It's, it's, it's inter- it, I find it interesting because everybody comes to a crossroads. My prediction for you, though, is I think you'll only practice law for another five to seven years. And I think you I think law for you is going to be I think law for you is a vehicle and a stepping stone to I think it's almost like it's almost like even if I use myself as an analogy, I became known as a really great marketing person. Right. That's only one. That's only one toe, you know, but it gave me a vehicle to just speak louder, you know, and I think your law practice is the same because, you know, what you're what you're doing, I think. First of all, your peers, I mean, man, they, you know, you, just your average lawyer, it's just, what is that? You know, like, I don't know. I, it, to general society, you know, it's not even, nobody's coming out of the game. Like, I can't even think about anybody in Canada. Like I said, I came on your your Instagram, came down. I'm like, oh, I thought you were a, a, a keynote speaker or something. Then I'm like, oh, she's a lawyer. I'm like, what is she, a lawyer? And then I think I was like, what, what kind of lawyer is she? Is she a real lawyer? And then I click <laughs> on it and I'm like, tattoos and all that. I'm like, oh, she's an actual lawyer. I'm like, okay. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> but it was just, it was super relatable. And I'm like, I, I don't really, you don't really see that. You don't see that in our right. country. You don't see that in Canada. You know, and, it, and for me, you just said, hey, in the courtroom, in order for anybody to like you, I think for anybody to like you, they got to re- be able to relate to you. And that's why in marketing, I preach authenticity. Show it. Show it. Right. So right? So, it is important. You got to like yourself and be confident in yourself. And a lot of people aren't. A lot of people are putting on this facade, and, and if they would just do them, if they would just figure out who they are and what they're about, and just, just do you, man. Uh, and a lot of people are, are not able to, to get themselves to a place where they're able to do that, and that's unfortunate. That's that's where the, where the real loss is. True happiness comes when the full self is revealed on purpose, and I, I stand behind that 110%, because that shit always comes and creeps back. And like you said, even with you, you're like, hey, Made some money, did all this stuff, got to a place. You're like, geez, but like, got to do something more. There's got to be more to that. And that's why yeah. you're coming out and doing what you're doing now, right? Yeah. And, and it took me a long time to do that. You know, I'm not saying from a place of judgment or you got to, you people don't know themselves. I was living like that, you know, pretending that I didn't have that past or history for years. You know, I, I wanted to hide that and become something else. But you bring that with you, right? You can't actually divorce yourself from the life you live. And so... I think it's a matter of accepting it and embracing it and then doing something with it. So Jordana is saying she was a self-implosion criminal. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, Jordana, that's it. Do you have anything else to say? Do you have any questions or anything? We're still live and just chatting, man. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on the show as always. I think it's, you know, it's amazing. We just start off on one topic and we, we maintain the topic, but the conversation just flows. It's always a pleasure. No, because I, I think about it for everybody listening too. I mean, I sit down and, I, you know, I think it's really important to, to stay on topic and stuff like that. But I think these topics, what you're, I mean, every topic that you mention is such a, it's it's got like a, a sub a sub 20 million topics to that topic, right? Because I think right. a lot of what we're talking about is humans and then, you know, a lot of your clientele, a lot of where they came from has got them to the place that they are now. Even their parents, parents, parents. Like we're talking generational type of yeah. things here. So there's not a yes or no answer. It's it's a big shade of beige, in my opinion. There's a lot of everybody's unique to their own story. You know what I mean? Right. So um, everyone, this has been another episode of the Ride Old Show podcast. Again, sponsored by JHT Criminal Law, based in Toronto, Ontario. 
Uh, you have all Jordana's details in the show notes as always. Um, Jordana, what's uh, just as a funny question? What's your favorite color? <laughs> My favorite color? Favorite favorite color? Red. Red, like a like a straight red. Like a deep red. There you go. You heard it uh, again, everybody. Please subscribe. Uh, review on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Feedback has been amazing. We love you. And remember, curiosity should always be your mandate. Have a good one. Peace.